Hello, everyone. We here at Faith and Fable are happy to announce our one-year anniversary giveaway is going on this very minute. Crossway Publishing is sponsoring our one-year $100 giveaway in the form of the entire New Testament ESV journaling Bible set. This 19-volume set, including every book of the New Testament, each volume is thin, portable, and perfect for personal Bible study, small group Bible study, or taking notes through a sermon series. So don't miss your chance to win by giving us five stars on iTunes and leaving a review. Here's the deal. To be eligible for this drawing, not only must you leave a five-star rating, but you've got to give an outstanding review to satisfy the expectations of Mark Mueller. So head on over to iTunes for your chance to win. This is Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Mark. I'm Emily. I'm Matt Henry. And I'm Lena. If you haven't left a review on iTunes yet, be sure to do it. By the time this releases, you have one week left and you could win our fabulous happy birthday giveaway. Wait a second. So we're announcing for the first time a giveaway? No. no this man. is the second time it will have been announced. <laughs> Oh, I don't, I don't pay attention to this part. <laughs> Mark's over here giving up. He's looking at possible just... We're more savvy than that, man. So, so this is the set. This is, we're giving away this thing for our birthday, right? Yeah. One year? $100. $100 Crossway. Crossway sponsored? Crossway sponsored. Giveaway. 19 volumes. Dang. I was going to say 19 volumes. It's a Bible? Mm, no. It's, it's like... It's each New Testament book. So you yeah. have the text on your left side, and then you have fully ruled columns. That's pretty impressive. It is really what? nice. Journal your thoughts. Wide margins, too. Dude, they know awesome. how to do it, man. I know. New, New American Standard, they, they're clueless. Damn it. <laughs> they just came out with the, their first leather-bound Bible. <laughs> this is leather, guys. Oh, their preacher Bible. Oh, sure. You know, wait, is this ESV? You know what's so funny? Is D and D right now is is promoting the NASB going nuts about it, and we're just going back to the ESV. D and I thought Dungeons and Dragons. Doctor oh, and Devotion. Uh, gosh, how do I explain? I just find it funny that we're just kind of flip flopping. <laughs> <laughs> Not a plug. Anyways, <laughs> we're better. Oh gosh. <laughs> you you said it. Joe, you can come. You can come on the show anytime and tell us tell us otherwise. That's fine. Yeah, tell them to like, add, share, and tell us what they think. <laughs> no, Joe, please don't. <laughs> All right. What are we talking about? We are talking about the doctrine of man. Excellent. So anthropology. We're still in systematic theology two, um, and we started last time talking about the aspects of man from the Old Testament perspective. And we do this with everything. We always deal with the lexical issues um, because until you understand how the words are uh, used, um, 
you, you can't go anywhere before before you have those. So uh, we talked about that, and the initial conclusion that we made was that we have to understand man holistically. Uh, we're not supposed to break him up into parts. The Old Testament doesn't treat mankind or a, a person that way. Rather, he's a complex being, and he has to be understood, therefore, in that holistic manner. Um, when you then break him into uh, parts, you, you've made an error, not only in understanding what man is, but also how we're to approach the various issues that affect man. So we're now going to do the same thing as we look at the New Testament, and we're going to look at a lot of different terms, but I think that it will be very interesting. Yeah. So um, when, the, when a person comes to the New Testament, um, they're going to find that these terms here that we're going to talk about, which is just going to be this entire episode, is terms. Um, End quote. Yeah. Um, it, they All these New Testament terms are doing is just continuing to express in a further way those Old Testament terms. And if I remember, we already kind of touched on that, yeah. like when we talked about Nefesh or right. kind of that, that. You were comparing them to some right, of the New Testament. Right, and we're going to now do the exact opposite. Right. So the, the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, um, it's just it's a it's a bit more precise language, right? Um, and so there, but having said that, the New Testament is still building off a solid Old Testament foundation, um, and so it's not going to be creating new terms or new categories and therefore new functions. And so just understand this is an expansion and a filling out of what's already been laid down in the Old Testament. I don't think that people appreciate it, what you just said there like they ought though because. A lot of people will bring in the culture of that day and assume that that's what's driving sure. the theology of the writers, which is just bad bibliology. Um, they're literally building off of the Old Testament, and uh, we we need to remember that. And when when you start hearing people saying, "Well, this is just a cultural issue," or this or that, yeah. you're almost always going to be finding error. But yeah. anyhow, so the very first term, uh, New Testament word is this, this term or this word of soma. Um, and so let's just give the meaning of that. This comes from the B-A-G-D, what is that? Uh, Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, I think, uh, right? And is the Dia... Is it Driver? I, I think remember. it is. Yeah. The, the the updated version is B-Dag. Um, but... In fact, I still pronounce this B-Dag even though it's not... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, like anyone here else, but <laughs> nobody cares. cares. Right. Um, so soma, soma though, one one of the meanings of it is they'll say it's it's the living body of a human being or an animal, just plain and simple. Matthew six twenty five, you'll see it in James three three. Um, you can all, it's also understood to be the dead body of a human being or an animal corpse. So it's it's kind of focused on that physical, whether it's alive or dead, it's that physical content that makes up some kind of being. And you see that one in Mark 15, 43, Hebrews 13, 11. Um, and so it, it is also known as that material part of a man, but in distinction from the soul or the spirit body. Yeah, so, that's the soul body or the spirit body. Right, yeah. Um, this is the body body. Yeah, the physical part. The meat body. The thing you touch, yeah. Um, <laughs> so what's interesting though is that all all three terms that the Bible uses to speak about um, the humans, so you get the body, the soul, and the spirit. Um, you'll see those sometimes all three used in one verse. Uh, other times you'll see just two of those terms being used. And then at other times you'll just see one of those terms being used, but as a synecdoche, which is 
a fancy grammatical word that it's where a, a small part or aspect represents the whole. Right. Um, all, all hands, all on, hands deck. on deck. Yeah, right. perfect. Um, but the point to understand is that the New Testament treats um, those various aspects of man holistically, which is why an author can do that. They can use all three, they can use two, or they can just use one. But in the mind of the author, he has all of those present. And you should, as a result, when you're doing interpretation, you should not try to read something, some deep meaning that he's chosen to use soul here versus spirit. Right, right. Um, but we we see it done we all do the time. Anyway, yeah. Um, so just quick examples of that. Um, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul uses both the term spirit, pneuma, and also soul, psuche, uh, there in one verse. Um, other times you'll see just spirit being used or pneuma. You'll see that, for instance, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.34 or James 2.26. Um, and then other times you'll see just the word soul or psuche being used. For instance, Jesus does it in Matthew 6, 25. Um, and there, most translators translate that term as life. Um, again, showing just how Jesus himself understood man to be whole. And so he wasn't just pulling out a part of man, but he used that term in reference to the entire being. Um, and then lastly, the body, the other way Somobi uses the body is an instrument of human experience and even suffering. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 12, 1, 2 Corinthians 4, 10. So there's shades and nuances to how it'll be used, but you should understand it, again, holistically. Sure, sure. So what we're going to uh, then talk about is the anthropological significance of this term, Soma. Um, I'll, I, I want to quote from Vine out of his expository dictionary. He says that Soma is the body as a whole. So there again. The instrument of life, whether man living, dead, or in resurrection, sometimes the word stands as a synecdoche for the complete man. The body is not the man, for he himself can exist apart from his body, like in 2 Corinthians 12.2. Uh, but the body is an essential part of the man, and therefore the redeemed are not perfected until the resurrection, such as uh, described in Hebrews 11.40. No man in his final state will be without his body. So the body is not, and, and we're going to build on this, but the body is not the source of sin uh, it is a neutral instrument. There's no war going on between the soul of man and the body of man. That, I think, will shock some people who are hearing because it's frequently taught that way. Um, that perception comes literally straight out of pagan thought and religion rather than the Bible, but it's very common in modern thought and preaching still. Yeah. We, we hear it all the time. Yeah. I like that quote. Um, he says, the body is not the man for he himself can exist apart from his body. Because you see this in Paul, where he says it's far better to depart, meaning to go to heaven. And yet still, he said, he won't be content there because he'll still be unclothed. Right. Meaning he won't have his, his final glorified body. And so while it's better than being here on earth, there's still a restlessness. He's still not yeah. content. Because what it means to be human is to have a body. <laughs> yeah, the, the whole the whole yes. package. It's also a fascinating one because it, it speaks of an aspect or kind of uh, discontentment that exists currently in heaven for everyone right. who's there because the body is not present. Right. And so they're aware, I mean, they're, it's better to be with Christ, but they're also aware it's, it's not the best. It's not, 
as it ought to be. Yeah. Fascinating thing just to kind of let your mind kind of run with. Because yeah. you kind of picture heaven, oh, right. everything's bliss. He's like, no, you're, you're naked. You're, it's not complete. Right. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, so the second term then is the term sarks. Um, and here's the, the meaning of this term, and we're getting this from Freiburg's lexicon and also uh, George Zemeck's work. Yeah, uh, he was Sarks in the New Testament. He was my professor. Yeah, and brutal. Um, is he still there? He, no, he's uh, in Jupiter, Florida at Expositor Seminary, hmm. uh, and they work closely with the Master Seminary. Okay. Um, so they'll say as the, um, the Sarks is understood to be as that muscular part that covers the bones of a um, human or an animal, in other words, body of flesh. Um, they'll say bisynecticky, uh, it's also the physical body as a whole body. So that's important, like in Acts 2.31. So they'll, they'll, ref, they'll use the term sarks, but in that context, it's, it's understanding the whole being, right. not just the fleshy part like you see here in 1 Corinthians 5.39. Um, then again, it, it flips in Matthew 26.41. Um, it's used, to, translated as flesh there, but in reference to the physical body. Right. Um, then in John 1, 14, 1 Peter 1, 24 takes on a new shade of meaning, and it has a connotation of creaturely weakness. In fact, sarks is such a key term and misunderstood by a lot of people because of these shades of meaning. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a great one in John 1 that we don't yeah. have time to get into. But um, And then uh, you'll also see it in Romans 1, 3, 9, 5, for example, as a designation of family and marital relationship. Um, and then... Then you have it, um, and this is kind of the big one, um, in those homardiological passages in Romans chapter 7, and also you'll see this in Galatians. And we haven't taught about homardiology yet, so that's the doctrine of sin. Right. Um, so you want to give some of these quotes? Yeah, we're going to just go bouncing back and forth and, and giving some key quotes. So Guthrie in New Testament Theology writes, In such contexts, the physical connotation of Sarks is defined and controlled by the idea of the entire man versus only the fleshy part being apart from God. Yeah. In Lang's epistle to, of Paul to the Romans, he says, Flesh is then the whole nature of man turned away from God in the supreme interest of self, devoted to the creature, the ruling principle of the flesh is undoubtedly selfishness. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, sad, but good. Um, the self-reliant attitude of the man who puts his trust in his own strength and that which is controllable by him. That's from Boltman. Good, Rudolph. Um, and then Cranfield's uh, commentary on Romans, our fallen egocentric human nature and all that belongs to it. Uh, then Thayer's lexicon, he says, uh, it's mere human nature apart from divine influence and therefore prone to sin and opposed to God. And then Freiburg's lexicon, in an ethical sense in Paul's epistles, and he gives two things here. One, as a sinful and sensual power trending towards sin and opposed to the Spirit's working, and then also as life apart from the Spirit of God and controlled by sin in its expressions of the flesh. So that's that, it's distinct Paul's use of it, but it's that sinful aspect. He'll often reference the flesh and the term he's using there is sarks. And so while in other passages in the scripture, it can be in reference just to your body, um, a marital relationship, um, a few others here, it's also used as that sinful nature. Yeah, uh, and and some translations actually eliminate the word flesh and use sinful nature, which is unfortunate, I think, though, because it... it um, helps 
confuse the idea of what there's more going on than just the sinful nature. It's involving still uh, the body, yeah. but but it's not a creaturely weakness, right? That yeah. right. So there's also a, a, an anthropological significance then of Sark's, um, since we're talking about anthropology. Now this is a lengthy quote. Uh, how do you think you pronounce that? Thistleton's. Mm-hmm. Um, his work in uh, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology. Um, and he writes, Since the meaning of Sarks varies radically from context to context, several distinct points must be made about the hermeneutics of the term. In some contexts, Sarks calls attention to man's creaturely, creatureliness and frailty, to the fact that he's fragile, fallible, and vulnerable. The biblical writers give a warning against any false hope and consequent disillusionment brought about by putting undue confidence and trust in man as a fallible and frail creature. The Bible also calls attention to man's creatureliness before God and distance uh, from him in his otherness and transcendence. In times of oppression or persecution, the believers encourage not to fear an enemy who is mere flesh. Also, the physical nature of Sarks has positive significance in terms of the bodily obedience of the Christian. Paul is far from endorsing the verdict of flesh is useless. The believer still lives in the flesh, although he's not according to the flesh. In other passages in Paul, the mental aspect of flesh is hostile to God. Flesh in this use evaluates man as a sinner before God. The outlook of the flesh is the outlook oriented toward the self, that which pursues its own end in self-sufficient independence of God. That last part's real key. Yeah. Um, yeah, good quote. Um, so when, when we say that the believer is, you know, quote, walking in the flesh, um, we're saying that he's he's therefore conducting himself without a reliance upon God and right. not concerning himself to live in such a way that honors God. Um, rather, in fact, at the center of his thoughts and his motives and his actions is self and for the purpose of pleasing self. That's the idea. Which right right there, when you're when you're working with somebody and they're and you know and you're saying you don't want to walk by the flesh that's j- just a simple question that a person could begin to ask himself is what's the purpose of their choices why are they doing what they're doing and what's the goal and is it for self and right. pleasing self and living for self and and how much of that is focused uh, i.e. walking by the Spirit under the control and influence and purposes of what the Spirit has revealed in the Word. So just a simple way that you can even say, well, I don't think I'm walking in the flesh, and yet everyone looking at you says, you live for yourself, dude. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then a next term is uh, psuche. Um, and here, this the meaning here is some of these are adapted from Burton's Spirit, Soul, and Flesh. Um, he says it's a many-sided word whose meaning is derived from the context, which is basically true of all words. Right. <laughs> right. Um, context matters. Um, and he'll say it speaks of the derived existence of all living creatures, including human beings' life principle, physical life, and also breath. Acts 20, verse 10, Revelation 8, and verse 9. Uh, as an earthly existence in contrast to the supernatural existence of life, um, it is also natural life or one's uh, life on earth, Matthew 6, 25, Acts 20, 24. Um, 
also as distinguished from the physical body of man and able to exist separately from it. Um, and so again, here you're seeing the term move away from that non-material aspect of what it right. means to be human, or I mean material aspect right. to the non-material. Um, he'll say as a constituent element of man's nature, it's the seed of vitality, thought and emotion and will, the human mind in the larger sense of the word, um, most frequently with special reference to its religious capacities and also experiences. Um, but its most common meaning is to just denote a human being right? Uh, in his holistic sense. Um, you'll see in Acts 2.43, Romans 2.9, that it's a person that is just an individual man. Um, you'll see it in terms of its enumerations in Acts 2.41. For instance, it says that all who had received the word were baptized and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So just a reference to man. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and there's a synecdoche again. Yeah. It's not just a soul. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and then you'll also see it with possessive limitations um, in reference to the self. Luke chapter one and verse 46. Um, it says, and Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. So it's like she, she has a soul. It's how it's phrased, but it should also be understood that she is soul. Uh, she is suke. That I, I like the way you said that, that she is soul, because she's not saying my soul, not my spirit. You know, it's not like she's saying, it's not my spirit exalting the Lord or my body. Is, it's by using the term soul, yeah. she's actually describing I am exalting the, uh, exalting the Lord. But it, it it's a way of, well, you said it, um, let me find it here, uh, about it, it has special reference to its religious capacities and experiences. And this would be an example of that, of of here she's she's dwelling on, on the Lord and she's exalting. And so she uses that term soul. Mm -hmm. Um, what there's a song, Solo Rise. I can't remember. I'm horrible, but same thing. You're you're not just asking the soul, right? It's uh, all of you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, what are some um, some anthropological? All right. Uh, so, uh, the anthropological significance of suke. Uh, the the term is used in essentially the same way the, as nephesh in the Old Testament. Um, however, there is a disparity of concept between the Old Testament nephesh and New Testament psuche. Boy, I, I've never been able <laughs> to say that, uh, but I'll try. Uh, the basic difference lies in the fact that the nephesh, unlike the psuche, okay. I know, but I can't get the P and the S together without sounding like an you absolute You don't have dork. that in English, I don't think. Uh, no, no one. That's I why. think it's... Good, that doesn't exist. Uh, is, anyhow, unlike the psuche, is not a spiritual entity which exists apart from the body. To the Hebrew, man was not a body and a soul, but rather a body-soul. The nephesh is then simply the individual in his totality. The New Testament, although it continues the idea of the soul, uh, or psuche, as a life principle, which becomes personified, such as in Acts 2.43, yet also views it as a spiritual entity which continues to exist after death. That comes out of Baker's Dictionary of Theology. Yeah. Uh, and then here's one from Grudem's Theology. He says, when Paul uses the term, it is much more characteristic of Paul's terminology to use the word spirit, to, which is psuche, uh, to talk about your relationship to God in worship and in prayer. Paul does not use the word soul, or this term psuche, very frequently, um, in fact, only 14 times out of the New Testament's 101 occurrences. Um, and when he does, he often uses it 
simply to refer to a person's life or as a synonym for a person himself. And use of the word soul to refer to the non-physical side of man is more characteristic of the Gospels and of many passages in the Old Testament. Well, and, and the reason it's being used in the Gospels is that connection back to Nefesh. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then Pneuma, so we got that P thing again going on. Um, here we have some meanings that we're going to draw again from Burton as well as uh, Galatians in the International Critical Commentary. Um, that's a boring read. Um, <laughs> uh, anyhow, it, it can refer to um, wind or breath, uh, such as John 3, 8 and 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. It also can refer to the embodied human spirit, which is that element of a, a living man by virtue of which he lives, feels, perceives, and wills. So as the seed of life or that in man which constitutes him as a living being, uh, Matthew 27, 5 and some others. Um, as the seed of emotion and will, especially of the moral and religious life, including thought as concerned with religion. So Mark 8, 12 there or John eleven thirty three, And also as the seed of consciousness and intelligence, Mark 2, 8. Um, the spirit of man separated also, it can speak of the spirit of man separated from the body after death, such as in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, where he talks about, you know, now he's naked. Yeah. Um, now, there's anthropological significance then to this word panuma. In earlier Jewish Oh, you're thought, just going for it, huh? You want, you're not going to let me go jump in there? I didn't know. I'm sorry. Why don't you do it? <laughs> Wow. I'm just going to sit my bubble. Well, you know, we're going back and forth between the terms. I know, but I never know where to do it. And I'm just going to drink my that train moving, you know. Um. (laughs) I'm leaving. Okay. You can just finish the whole thing. Well, let me give a quote. Um, James D.G. Dunn from the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology. Um, He says, as an earlier Jewish thought, pneuma denotes that power which man experiences as relating him to the spiritual realm. Within this broad definition, panuma has a fairly wide range of meaning. At one end of panuma's spectrum of meaning, it denotes the human spirit, or perhaps better, man, so far as he belongs to the spiritual realm and interacts with the spiritual realm. In my defense, these these are quotes, and you didn't italicize them, and that's what I was looking for was italics, so I thought it was still... That's that's fair. fair. All right, so I'm just a victim of your... Over anxiousness, uh, yeah. Formatting. Anyhow, um, Stacy in his uh, the Pauline view of man. There is a personal pneuma, the natural possession of every man, and is not easily distinguished. This is the key part from suke. So it, the spirit and soul, it, you're just you can't cut that. Yeah. Um, and then Dixon's Paul's use of the terms flesh and spirit. He says, in the case of Pneuma, the predominant element of Paul's thought was the divine power issuing from God and operative in the believer. So we find in the case of Sarks, the predominant thought of man standing by himself or left to himself over against God. All right. So then one of my favorite words, cardia, um, meaning this is going to come from Freiburg's lexicon in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Um, it, it has, again, like everything else, various shades of meaning. So it's viewed as a seat of physical vitality, such as Luke 21, 34, 
It's viewed as the human dwelling place of heavenly beings and powers, uh, such as God's love has been poured out within our hearts. Um, it's viewed as the innermost man, the source and seat of functions of soul and spirit in the emotional life, the volitional life, and the rational life. And the result of that is that you have desires and passions like joy, pain and sorrow, love, desire, and lust, and all these we have passages they can look at through uh, our show notes, right? That's what we call them. Um, there's, it's the seat of understanding, thinking, and reflection, such as Matthew 9, 4, or Luke 1, 51, and as the seat of the will in Acts 5, 4, and Hebrews 4, 12. Uh, so, Freiburg says, thus the heart is supremely the one center in man to which God turns, uh, in which religious life is rooted, which then determines the moral conduct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so the anthropological significance of this term, uh, the New Testament will use cardia to refer to the whole inner essence of a man. Um, it's that mission control center. And out of the heart flows, therefore, all the thoughts and the intentions, dreams, desires, expressions of the will, emotions, etc. cetera. Um, and so let me just give a quote here from uh, e. Towns in, in his The Meaning of Heart in the New Testament. He says, although explanations of the four functions of the heart have been given, the heart must be seen as a whole or totality to be correctly understood. These functions in reality cannot be separated because they interact and depend upon the other. Therefore, and here's the four parts, volition, moral, consciousness, thinking, and emotion stem from the heart, interacting and functioning dependent on one another. The person acts as a unit, not as a sectionalized being. And, well, we'll talk about how that impacts in just a moment. So then another term is noose. So you can see, <laughs> just like uh, we, we already said at the beginning, in the Old Testament, much more simpler, uh, just a few terms. Once you come into the Greek, it, it's, it's more um, yeah. uh, subtle and a lot of shades in terms used. And all of them are designed to paint a picture. But what we're trying to say is the picture we're painting is not a bunch of little parts, but the whole picture of what is made up, the very various aspects of what man is. Right. So, again, with noose, um, the meaning, this again comes from Freiburg's lexicon, uh, it's as the faculty of intelligence, understanding, mind, and intellect. Second, it's the faculty of moral perception, practical reason, insight, and awareness. Um, also, as the total inner orientation or moral attitude of thinking, mindset, uh, or disposition. Again, th these are so similar to heart. Yeah. And so, uh, the anthropological significance of noose um, is... Eggleston or Eggleston? What do you think? I think it's Eggleston. Okay. That's how I'm um, going to go with it. He, he G -G -L -E -S -T -O -N. can correct this. Uh, yeah. He, he says the total inner man viewed from the mental perspective, that's what this term means, the total inner man viewed from the mental perspective, which consciously acts in making practical moral judgments. Your mind, in other words. Um, and then Theological Dictionary of the New Testament uh, states that in the New Testament, there is no connection with the philosophical or mystical religious use. Um, 
So that's what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> that's deep. Yeah. All right. Then uh, I think this is the, a last... The point being that your your it speaks of your mind being engaged. It's not right. this mystical emptying of the mind where there's some kind of... Right. Uh, and then we have Sunaidasa. Uh, oh, I'm not... His, we have it transliterated too. Sunaidasis. Um, it's the emphasis that how would how would you pronounce it? The accent is on the epsilon iota. Um Sunadesis. Because it's uh it's not an E, it's an eta. Uh I actually well, practiced this. Oh you did? Yeah, and but when I was looking at it in the Greek, it was easy. Now I'm looking at it transliterated. But but it's sunadesis, and I thought... Well, actually, in its lexical form, it would be sunadesis, because you put the accent over the final iota. That's what, that's what I came the up final with. But then when I, no, but when I looked it up in the lexicon, I had the accent on the diphthong, and I'm like... They can't. That, that's what I was thinking. It has like, to be over the iota. Oh, I didn't take advantage of Greek grammar. I'm not going to argue with it. So say it your way, which will be the correct way. Well, I'm just sunadesis or sunadesis. Sunadesis. That's yeah. how I'm going to do it, and that's what is the official term now. <laughs> oh, this is fun. Mm. Um, all right, we all clicked off 20 minutes ago. It doesn't matter. We're doing lexical <laughs> junk tonight. Right. Um, but it's good lexical <laughs> stuff, and they need. Well, to I think so. I think so too, and this is why we exist. We we're, we're that niche. <laughs> um, Anyhow, Freiburg again. Uh, it's as the perceptive awareness within oneself, the consciousness. Or it's also the faculty of moral consciousness or awareness by which moral judgments relating to right and wrong are made conscious. Yeah. Uh, then the anthropological significance of this term, uh, B.F. Harris states, mind and conscience at times are distinct. Noose is that which creates a purpose or act. Um Sunidesis is that which judges a purpose or act given to us by God. That's a helpful distinction. Yeah. Um, and then you want to give E-Towns? Yeah. In addition, it seems clear that the heart is considered as a seat of the moral consciousness. Hebrews 10.22 also implies the conscience as being in the heart, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience— that's Hebrews. Right. Yeah. Uh, Hebrews 10.22. The root for conscience is St. Sunadesis, uh, a knowing within, uh, a knowing with oneself. Since memory, thinking, and volition are necessary functions of the conscience, it's a natural place that, that it's mat natural to place the conscience in the heart because memory, thinking, and volition function in the heart. The conscience and the heart are also the place where God works with the individual. Yeah. That's a pretty full statement. Yeah. Um, and then you have this final category um, of the inner and then outer man. Um, now, this is uniquely Pauline. Um, he's the only one who talks this way. And it's also a frequently messed up idea, which is why we're spending time on this lexical yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, you'll see it in Romans 7, 22, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, and Ephesians 3, 16. And again, he's the only one who talks this way um, and makes this, distinction. So um, let me say this and then you can read the quote. Um, the, the biggest 
hurdle when it comes to this inner outer man concept that a person has to kind of get over is the tendency to wreak or read a, that Greek dualism into the term. Yep. Constantly hearing it. Where there's Constantly. a separation between the inner, outer, spiritual, yep. physical. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so Richard, uh, I, I don't even know how to pronounce that. I, I decided it would be Bube. <laughs> that sounds B-U-B-E. About, that sounds just fine. I'm going with it. Could be Bubby. Could be Bube. <laughs> Bube or Boob. I don't know. <laughs> I was like, I went around. I'm like, I'm going with Bube. It sounds like a, isn't that a singer? That's Buble. Oh. This is B-U-B-E. I was told, I, a, a guy on the radio described Buble as a effeminate Frank Sinatra. Mm. All right. I, I'm not saying that I, he's right. I just chuckled over that. Anyhow, uh, the distinction between the inner man and the outer man is non-biblical. That's important. Um, the Bible is always concerned with the whole man, with a man's deeds, and not just with a man's motives. As good deeds do not justify evil motives, so good motives do not justify evil deeds. A man lives as much from without to within as he does as he lives from within to without. Yeah. Good, good stuff there. Right. So it's best to see then that when the Bible is speaking of the outer man, it's referring to man in relation to the physical world which he lives. When the inner man is used, it's referring to man in relation to the spiritual realm to which he lives. That's all. It's just talking about an orientation. Yeah. Um, and you see that in Paul, you know, when he's talking about um, how they're in Corinth are so screwed up and like sexual deviance basically. And, you know, they're sleeping around with a lot of people, but they're justifying it as, well, I'm, yeah, that's just my physical body doing that, right. but my spirit is turning that into worship. And it's like, well, well, yeah. In fact, they made their argument was, look, the stomach was made for food. And so, and the body was also made for sex, you know, so it's all, and he's like, no, no. no. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, there's, there's a motive there that's sinful. And what they're doing is trying to justify that motive as somehow this is this sex is good. So I can turn this into worship. Yeah. And he's like, no. Um, okay. So the conclusion on this, um, again, this was a giant word study. Um, but the point to walk away with is that the new Testament supports the old Testament in that we must view and approach man as a whole. Um, it's an important concept to grasp. Um, as again, there's many implications, um, again, if you view man as having parts and not aspects, it's going to determine how you deal with man, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Um, and by the way, because we we did some of those words like panuma, where he, where even those um, theologians were talking about how the spirit um, can be separated from the physical. So how can you keep it just holistic? Um, again, remember the point though that Paul makes in that his soul's not right until he has right. that, that physical body back. Um, so, um, yeah, you, you can't make these separations. Um, and we're going to see that next time. Um, you know, we're not arguing that because man is holistic, you, you, we shouldn't see a medical doctor, um, or something like that. Um, so don't hear us wrongly there. Um, but it will affect how you understand such things as counseling and psychology and the cognitive issues and behavioral issues. Right. You have to approach these things holistically and, we're going to try to draw some of that out when we deal with um, the question next time of whether or not man is dichotomy, that is body, soul, 
body and soul slash spirit <laughs> or trichotomy, um, which is body, soul, and spirit. So is he two or three? Right. And, you know, I, I actually attend a church where people left the church because they landed on one side and not the other and the pastor held to another. I was like, wow. That's what you're splitting on. Yeah. Yep. Pun intended. Oh, did I didn't even that? get it. You did that to me on another thing uh, when I made my made something involving yeah, police your, batons. Your, uh, and I, batons. Banged, I banged out this little holder for him, and you said pun intended. <laughs> and I didn't even get it. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow. Well, until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation, let us know what you think about the New Testament aspects of man. Uh, we would ask that you leave a five-star review but also comment. Please comment. We appreciate it, and we need those uh, on iTunes for your chance to win the entire set of New Testament set of Crossways Journaling Bibles. If they don't comment, they're not entered. Is that how it works? Correct. Yeah. So you got to leave a five star, and you have to leave we a comment. draw from your names. Yeah. Oh, is that why? Yeah. Yep. So we're we're basically bribing you. Yep. And we're doing it shamelessly, but it's not me. It's the inner me, not the outer me. That All right. Don't bad. forget to uh, like, share, <laughs> comment, rate, and review. Hit us up on our brand new Twitter account and tell your friends.